Amen. Well, that, that's some good news. We've got some good news. So uh, let's read our scripture reading and then pray. Then we'll dive into Isaiah in our study this morning. So if you're not there already, our scripture reading is found on page 600 in the uh, Pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to grab the, the black Bible in the pew in front of you and turn to page 600. And we're going to read Isaiah 40, verses 12 to 31. And if you wouldn't mind joining me in standing in honor of God's word, you can follow along as I read. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Enclose the dust of the earth in a measure and weigh the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is God's word. You may be seated. Okay, so... After a little hiatus here, we're back in our study on Isaiah, and right before Christmas, Sunday before Christmas, we considered Isaiah 40, verses 1 to 11, um, which was fitting because some of those words 
are words that are on John the Baptist's lips as he um, is the forerunner of the Messiah prior to his coming. And so now we hit the second half of chapter 40. And, you know, there were some pretty awesome promises made at the beginning of chapter 40. Um, Things like, now remember, this is written to people who were in exile in Babylon. So their circumstances were not real great. And Isaiah is writing to say, comfort, comfort. Your warfare is ended. Your iniquity is pardoned. And then down in verse 9, get up and you've got some good news, so herald it. Don't fear. And then verse 11 is so sweet. The shepherd is going to come and tend his flock. He's going to gather the lambs in his arms. He's going to carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So how's he going to do this? Can we trust him to follow through on these promises? We're still in Babylon. We're still displaced. We're still suffering. We're still under the thumb of a foreign power. So the whole point, the connection between the first half of 40 and the second half of 40 is, can he make good on these promises? Well, here's the God who makes these promises. That's what the second half is all about, is look at me, behold your God, and when you see who I am, who I am, the one who's making these promises, you will know that I can make good on my promises. You don't have to doubt that, okay? So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to consider who he is, and don't let it be lost on you that these folks were in exile, okay? So we're not literal political exiles, but we are exiles according to 1 Peter, We're not home yet. I hope none of you feel like you're home. Does anybody feel totally home in this broken, fallen world that's just filled with violence and injustice and all kinds of ugliness, like terrorist threats? I I hope you get a little nervous here, like the kind of stuff that happens after the evening news. Terrorist threats. Did you know that it's quite possible in our lifetime that there could be like a solar flare, just to give you another thing to worry about that you hadn't thought about? Um, A solar flare that if it hits just at the right angle, it could wipe out the GPS system for like a long time and cost the U.S. something like $2 trillion to get it back in place. Wouldn't that be great? National debt, plummeting stock markets, disheartening politics, unpromising future political landscape, racism, uncontrollable weather patterns that cripple whole regions, Earthquakes, wars, cyber terrorism that holds threats and domino effects that most of us haven't even pondered. See, aren't you getting nervous? Cyber bullies. I could tell you stories. I heard some things this week. Threats of random violence. Going to the movie theater, going to the shopping mall. Could happen to me. Sensuality everywhere, sexual perversion increasingly normalized, cancer, all kinds of diseases, the threats to us, not just out there. How about super virus possibilities? You know, the Zika virus is in the news this week. Maybe there's going to be the super virus that, you know, makes Ebola look tame. When's that going to come? In America, churches in decline, scandals, spin, suspicion, cynicism, leaders falling. How about very personally, depression, bad marriages, unemployment, loneliness, betrayal, rejection. We're in exile. We're in the wilderness. We're not home yet. This is in the promised land. I don't think I have to, you know, really twist your arm to believe that. 
But the answer of this chapter is we need to see God. We need to behold our God. And then we're going to be willing to wait for him, for his timing, for his answers, for his strength. And we will be strengthened as we wait on him. So we need to know God more than anything else. More than anything else, you and I need to know God. Do you believe that? I mean, really know him. Walk with him. Know who he is. God in covenant with our soul. So let's behold our God, not as an academic exercise, but know our God so that we can have confidence in him and walk with him through this valley of tears, through this wilderness, through the exile until we get home. So there's... uh, How many points are there? I forget. Um, Five points. We actually, I don't think we're going to get to the last section, um, which is really kind of the punchline, but that's okay. Um, I think you'll see the trajectory, and then we'll really get to camp out on verses 28 to 31 next week, Lord willing. Okay, so first off, the immensity of God. Look at verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span. You know what a span is? That's a span. Marked off the heavens with his thumb and pinky. Okay? We're going to get to more of that to kind of fill out the meaning of that in a few minutes. Who's enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who? No one. Obviously, no one but... The Lord, he's the only one. So he's pictured here almost like this divine craftsman at his workbench. I mean, where else do you have a scale like this to just wait? Okay, there's Mount Everest. (laughs) So this world, indeed the entire universe, is just a little project on his bench. And we're going to come back in a few moments to the size of the universe, okay? So God is immense, And he is infinitely wise beyond our ability to comprehend. Look at verse 13. Who has measured? A little bit of an awkward translation there. You can see down, if you're using the ESV, there's a little footnote. Has directed. Could be that. um, Directed the Spirit of the Lord. In other words, who needs to tell the Spirit of the Lord what to do? Nobody. It could also be who can comprehend um, the mind of the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord. Again, the answer is no one. What man shows God his counsel? No one. Whom did he consult? Who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice or the right way to do things? Another way to translate that. Who taught him knowledge? Who showed him the way of understanding? Who? No one. Okay, so in Babylonian mythology or in their, you know, gods and their worship, remember these Israelites are in Babylon. Marduk was the creator god. And Marduk needed to consult the wisdom of Ea, the all-wise, in order to create. So this is an intentional jab at the gods of the nations, showing that our god is superior. He is the only true god. It's a dig on Babylon's false God and the superior and, and saying the superiority of the true God. So verse 14, whom did he consult? Whom did he who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge? Who showed him the way of understanding? Does that sound familiar? 
to any of you, maybe like 50 plus of you, doing the fighter verses this year. Okay, so you know what I'm going to do right now. Ask for a volunteer. Because today's the day to quote Romans 11, 33 to 36, which quotes Isaiah 40. How cool is that? Greg, you got it? Go for it. That's great. Thank you. All right. Amen. That's good. That's good. So here it is right here. Who taught him those things? No one. And Paul, after all this theology and the grace of God, he breaks forth into doxology, praising this God who is immense and incomparable and awesome. Okay? So let's stop and think. We wonder why we struggle at times with the justice and love of God. Have you ever wrestled with that? Like, how can God, if he's so loving, this doesn't seem fair, Okay? It's important to locate those questions and how we oftentimes feel and kind of let the Word of God shape us and chasten us and correct us and reform us. I mean, who are we? Thankfully, God will never, ever seek you or me <laughs> for counsel regarding how to run the universe. It's a good thing. Or how to be perfectly loving and just. Because you know what? When I've really wrestled with those questions in the past, I know if I'm honest, the real struggle down at the bottom has been I actually think I'm more loving than God. So if we have huge problems with these things, our real problem is that we don't know the infinitude of God and our finiteness and limitations, not to mention our sinfulness and how that warps our thinking. We think we're too much like him. You know, so maybe he would like me in an advisorial role. We think that the distance between us is not nearly as great as it is, but Isaiah 55, just a few chapters later, the Lord says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord, for as the Heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Okay, so Isaiah 40 is really, really, really clear that God is really, really, really big and you and I, we are really, really, really small. Even the nations are nothing. Look at verses 15 to 17. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. So in the ancient Near East, the nation was the greatest, most important thing. And it's all just like a drop from a bucket. Have you ever worried about a drop from a bucket? Okay, maybe you have if it's like a substance that you don't want on your floor and you dropped it inside. But I mean, if you're outside, big pail of water, you slosh a little droplet out, hits the grass. Are you worrying about that thing? It's nothing. Remember that scale on God's workbench? Well, the nations like China, India, vast population, USA, we're not the center of the world. We're just dust. Now, verse 17 could be easily misunderstood. It does not say that the nations are nothing to him. It says they are nothing before him. You get the, dis the difference? It doesn't mean that he holds the nations in contempt and he's dismissive of them. 
It says that the nations are nothing before him. In comparison with him, they're just, they're just nothing. So again, God is really, really, really big and awesome and glorious. And we, even we, even the greatest nations of the earth are really, really, really small. And so if that's true, and if God is for you, who can be against you? Now, how much worship is this God worthy of? What sacrifice of worship is acceptable or pleasing or worthy to this God? Chris hinted at this as we were singing. Well, Barry Webb, one commentary writes, commentator, he writes, he is worthy of more worship than we could ever give him. That's true. Very much unlike the gods of the nations. The gods of the nations, they needed to be fed and pacified so you had to sacrifice in order to stay on the good side of the gods. So if you wanted to have children or have productive crops, you better make sure that you offer acceptable, worthy sacrifices to the gods of fertility and crops, right? Rain, rain gods. And guess what? We, we can think, man, that's crazy. I can't believe they did that kind of thing. There's actually nothing new under the sun. If you worship technology and scientific progress you're going to have to spend some serious money to get the latest gadgets and tech. If you worship image and reputation, you're probably going to have to spend some serious cash for a cool wardrobe and the right car, etc. But our God, the true God, you could cut down all those awesome cedars in Lebanon. They were known for their trees. And then offer all the beasts of Lebanon on some massive altar, and it still wouldn't be worthy of this God. That's how great he is. And actually, Chris quoted it, Acts 17. He doesn't need any of it. So how can we make a, a sacrifice of worship that's acceptable and pleasing and, and worthy? We can't. We can't pay for our sins. We can't atone for our sins. We can't appease the, the wrath of this God against our sin. We can't get on this God's good side by our good works. There's only one sacrifice that's ultimately worthy. And if you keep reading in Isaiah, you read about it in Isaiah 53. It was the will of the Lord to crush his son. He put him to grief. When his soul has made an offering for guilt in our place, he will see his offspring, the fruit of his labor, the fruit of his suffering. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So the infinitely worthy Lamb of God was slain in our place, and he makes the acceptable sacrifice for us in our place so that we can be acceptable in his sight. So are you trusting in Jesus alone for right standing and peace and acceptance with the true and living God. How great is that? All the gods of the nations, you have to work for them to get in their good graces. This God works for us and does all the work and it's finished. We have to just trust and receive. It's grace. It's awesome. This is good news. So, um, only then... When you get that right, when we get this right, the foundation right, can you offer your body as a living sacrifice, which is actually this week's fighter verses. <laughs> okay? 
I won't ask anybody to quote that one because I know you haven't started yet. It's only in view of the mercies of God that we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. All of our life is worship. It's not in order to be accepted by God. It's in view of the mercies. It's because we've been accepted by God, by his own doing. So we regularly need our God-shrinking tendencies to just be blown up. We so badly, so regularly need to see God for who he is. Because what happens is our trials and our suffering, they get right up here in front of our face. We can't see around them. They threaten to obscure his glory. So he is obviously immense, huge, majestic, glorious, awesome, wonderful. And we are oftentimes, practically speaking, about as impressed with him and in awe of him as we are most of the time with those, just those little specks of light in the sky. Twinkle, twinkle, little star. How I wonder what you are. But see, God's word, especially Isaiah 40, is like, well, if God's word is like a telescope to show us how big and glorious that star is that looks little, then Isaiah 40 is like the Hubble telescope. (laughs) So, I mean, we, we so badly need this. I hope that you see the point of Isaiah 40 is to just help us lift up our eyes and see, behold, the glory of God. As Paul prayed for the believers in Ephesus in Ephesians 1, we need the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of our heart enlightened. Because, see, our idolatry also blinds us to his glory. Suffering can do that where we're just going like this, can't see anything else. But our idolatry also blinds us to his glory. So if you love money, money is just paper, right? And even the things it can buy, they're just things, created things. They're dead and lifeless. And we all, by this kind of secret law of the soul, become like what we admire, become like what we worship. So if you're worshiping idols, bowing down, serving something other than God, you're going to become like what you worship which means you will become dull and deaf and blind to reality, just like your God, lowercase g. So that's why Isaiah comes on the scene, and God is speaking through him mercifully. In a sense, it's like our our dead, dull hearts, the paddles get applied. Clear. Don't you know? Don't you hear? Hasn't it been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? Verse 21, are you hopeless, despairing? Are you being lured away to other gods? You've got to be blind and dull. Behold your God. Nobody else can make the worlds. No one can counsel God. The nations are nothing before him. And then he goes on, verses 21 to 24, that the most powerful rulers are nothing, which is a good thing, for us to remember in light of the political and military landscape across this globe right now. So look at verse 22. It is he, it's he alone who sits above the circle of the earth. The circle would be either the heavens or or the horizon, which appears as circular, okay? So he sits above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain. I don't know either what that means, but I mean, curtains for me, I'm not sure the curtain in the ancient Near Eastern mind, but... It's pretty easy to just go, whoosh, 
That's what I do when I pull a curtain. So that's about how hard it is for God. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain. He spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing, makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root near it when he blows on them. They wither. Tempest carries them off like stubble. And then look at verse 26. Lift is a command, folks. We need to obey this command right now. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by name, calling them all by name. I'm sorry, host by number, calling them all by name by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. First off, this was, again, just right in the face of the Babylonians. Because the Babylonians worshiped the stars, celestial bodies. And those in exile need to be reminded to come alive and awake to the fact that they actually worshipped the maker of the stars and the sustainer of the stars, the namer of the stars. So the astrologers and astrologists may have names for the celestial beings, but God alone, the creator of all of these, is the one who knows the real names, the ones he gave them. And I can guarantee that God's names are better than the ones that our scientists have come up with, like Quasar... 3C-273. I mean, come on. I know God's name is way better for that quasar. There's stars Tauri 16, Tauri 17, Tauri 18. I bet that would go on for a while. I don't know which galaxy those ones are in. Okay, but verse 26, it's a command. Lift up your eyes on high and see. Uh, One writer I uh, read said, this is a command for all of us to become amateur astronomers for the sake of seeing the glory of God. So let's do this briefly here, and be blown away. So did you know that the sun accounts for 99.8% of the mass in our solar system? Did you know that? So all the other, like Jupiter, all the, all the planets and moons and whatnot, and maybe there's another planet out there. I mean, come on, this is just our solar system, and there's, a, there's maybe a planet out there that we haven't found out? I mean, come on. Did you read about that this week? Okay. Anyway, all the planets and moons make up 0.2% of the mass in our solar system. Astronomers using the Hubble telescope recently determined the true color of planet, here we go again, their great naming um, facility, HD 189733b. It's orbiting another star, a deep azure blue, so they, they finally figured out its true color. It's like Earth, but it's very different than Earth. This planet's atmosphere is scorching with a temperature of over 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. And I, this is so awesome. <laughs> we read some, Okay, I'm not going to go off on that tangent. It rains glass there. Sideways. I'm not kidding. In howling winds, 4,400 miles an hour. The wind is going 4,400 miles an hour, and the rain is glass going sideways. Okay. <laughs> that one's 63 light years from us, but it's an exoplanet. Um, all right. There is a pretty large star in another corner of our galaxy. We're still in our galaxy, Milky Way galaxy, called Eta Carinae, has a diameter of 400 million miles. Just let that sink in. It's only 7,500 light years from us. In 1848, it ejected a cloud of gas and dust that's still visible 
And that nebulae is about two times the width of our entire solar system. What it spit out is twice as wide as our solar system. The Pistol Star is another huge star in our galaxy, Milky Way galaxy, about 25,000 light years away. It glows with the energy of 10 million of our suns. But that's actually nothing compared to what a quasar can produce. What is a quasar, you ask? Well, it's an incredibly bright core of a distant spiral galaxy, and some quasars radiate as much energy as a thousand times the energy radiated by our galaxy. Not our solar system, our galaxy. But the size of the quasar is only slightly larger than our solar system. So speaking of our galaxy, if you were traveling at the speed of light, 186,000, roughly, miles per second, it would take you 100,000 years to travel from one end of the other in our galaxy, just our galaxy. Light can travel around our little world seven times in a second. Light travels six trillion miles in an hour. I'm sorry, per year. Sorry, that's a light year. How far does light go in a year? Six trillion miles. It would take our fastest spacecraft 18,000 years to travel one light year. The Milky Way is our home galaxy. It's home to somewhere between 100 and 400 billion stars. Maybe they're still counting. I don't know. Somewhere in there, give or take 300 billion, you know, something like that. Um, the largest stars are called red hypergiants. One absurdly large one is called V.Y. Canis Majoris. If you stacked 1,420 of our suns on top of each other, you would have the diameter of V.Y. Canis Majoris. If V.Y. Canis Majoris were in the center of our solar system, it would swallow up everything out to the orbit of Saturn. That's the sixth rock from the sun, okay, past Jupiter. It is roughly, ready? It's roughly 1.25 billion miles in diameter. One star. Apparently, there was a star in the constellation Cassiopeia. The star was named Cassiopeia A. Very creative name. When it blew up, it shined with the brightness of 100 billion of our suns. Small stars can be pretty impressive, too. When a large star dies by exploding in a supernova, a gravitational collapse can take place and result in a neutron star, an incredibly dense star. It's a quadrillion times denser than a normal star. Listen to this. This tiny little star has a diameter. You know, there's some out there that they've seen. 24 kilometers wide. It's like from here to Longwood Gardens. Just drop this star between here and Longwood Gardens, right? Its mass is as much as three suns. Or, if you need something a little more close to home, a million Earths. Some amazing neutron star facts. A teaspoon of it weighs six trillion pounds. That would be like trying to stuff 50 million elephants. <laughs> this is crazy. It'd be like trying to stuff 50 million elephants into a thimble. I've got some help from Sam Storms. I, well, I'm looking on the internet, whatever, I can't. The density of a neutron star is the same as compressing a Boeing 747 into a small grain of sand. 
And you know what? Some of them spin over 600 times per second. What does it take to make something that heavy spin that fast to get it started? Black holes. Good grief. Some of them, I mean, again, there's lots of questions, but M87, great name. Mere 50 million light years away, the mass of it is more than 3 billion suns. So with all of our technological advancement, you'd think that the mystery and wonder of the universe would shrink down to size because of our impressive scientific insight, you know, like with the way it's happened with, you know, some of our um, physiology stuff and medicine and, you know, so forth. <clears throat> Got explanations for everything. Brain science. Um, no, it looks like the more we learn, the more we learn we don't know and understand. So I just wonder if maybe we need to stop here and repent of how we've downsized God and tried to domesticate him and just put him in our little box. I, I've done, I mean, I think we've almost been patronizing toward God. As if. Like, sometimes I'm, you know, busy, you know, stop to pray before I eat. And I'm like, yeah, I guess I should probably do that. And it's just like this thing. Was I actually talking to the God of the universe or was I just kind of like checking the box? Like, oh, that was so flippant. Do I know who I just addressed? I remember being at the Air and Space, I, I think I mentioned this a couple years ago, being at the Air and Space Museum watching this movie on the size of the universe. I was like, I was wreck after that thing. I was in tears, repenting. I couldn't go to lunch because I just realized how I was trifling with this God that is so unimaginably great. Who do I think I am? So, so just stop and think, how many times thus far in your life have you questioned God? And I don't mean like the humble, sincere inquiries. I mean the, you're either like flat out question his wisdom and his goodness, or you're just feeling like it's warranted. Aren't you glad that that God is merciful and gracious and sends his son to pay for all that nasty, like, high-handed, clay-to-the-potter stuff. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. How much higher? Incomparably higher. Look at verse 25, the incomparability of God. Verse 25, to whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. In fact, holy there is without an article, like the it's almost as though holy were another name for God here. Holy keeps saying, like, that's who he is. Holy one, he's speaking. So what is God's holiness? This is central to the book of Isaiah. I mean, it can refer to his moral purity, but at the core, it's much broader and more fundamental than that. To say that God is holy or separate or set apart is to say that he is un. Rivaled. He is unparalleled. He is unmatched. He is unsurpassed. He is unequaled. He is in a class by himself. He is utterly unique. Thus, verse 25, to whom will you compare me? So have you ever thought of what it takes for God to make his greatness understandable to us? Do you know what it takes? Can you just begin to imagine what it takes for God to stoop and communicate with us if there's nothing that compares with him? 
Like, do you see? Got a little problem here built in. <laughs> if there's nothing that we can compare with him, then how are we going to really know what he's like? How can infinite, I'm sorry, how can finite language describe infinite reality? Well, whenever we encounter something that's outside our previous experience, we rely on analogical language, don't you? Like metaphor, simile, in order to describe what we encounter. So you can see this problem that some of the writers of Scripture have, some of the prophets, when they have an encounter with God or, you know, Revelation or Ezekiel, it's, it was like this and it had the appearance of that. And Do you see what I'm saying? Maybe you've had the experience of, you know, seeing some breathtaking view or a sunset, vacation, and, you know, you're showing the pictures and you say, ah, the picture just doesn't do it justice. Just lost something in the translation there. What's, you know, it's hard to describe sometimes even finite things like, here's a rock. What if you had to describe a rock to somebody that's never seen one, never felt one? You might have a little bit of trouble, but you might be able to pull that off. But the more complex, the more intangible a thing gets, the more difficult it is to find one-to-one correlation, right, in language. And we're still talking about finite reality. So maybe you get a taste of this in the romantic realm. That's why there's so much poetry. How do I put my feelings into words? How do I communicate how I'm feeling? I need, I need to write a poem. I need lots of word pictures and analogies and so forth. Well, when it comes to knowing God, we need metaphors. We need word pictures. And they are going to, by definition, be limited and inadequate. So we're going to need lots of them because they'll ultimately break down at some point. So we gain things with every metaphor as God has revealed himself to us, but we also ought to think of what is still not known. So he is shepherd and rock and fortress and redeemer and warrior. All those things are absolutely true. But any of you that have tried to translate something meaningful from one language to another, you know that oftentimes you lose stuff in the translation. Are you tracking with me? So what was God giving up to accommodate us by speaking in our languages? A.W. Tozer says, we cannot grasp the true meaning of the divine holiness by thinking of someone or something very pure and then raising the concept to the highest degree we are capable of. God's holiness is not simply the best we know, infinitely bettered, We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. So this is why we have so much, so many words that we have to use the negative to describe God. He is infinite. He is immutable. He is incomprehensible. I'm not saying all this to depress you, like, you can't know God, you puny worm. You know, like, that's not the point. God did give us word pictures, a wonderful like treasure trove of them in his word. And then the word, not just word pictures, but the word became flesh. Jesus Christ, who is the visible image of the invisible God, the radiance of God's glory, who said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Talk about ultimate, infinite condescension, stooping down so that God would know, so that we could know him. He wants us 
to know him. He wants us to know his love for us. He wants us to know if he is for us, then who in the world could be against us? And then someday we're going to actually see him face to face and we're going to know and see this immense incomprehensible God face to face and someday we're going to know fully even as we're fully known. Now we know in part, we only see through a mirror dimly, but one day it's going to be face to face. We live in the shadowlands. Heaven is the substance. So how blessed are the pure in heart, but they're going to see God. So back at verse 18, to whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? Any takers? I mean, how can you answer that question? And look at where verse 19 goes. And just think about how insane idolatry is. An idol? There's, there's one answer. There's one option. A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. You know, it takes a few creatures to get it ready to be worshipped. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. It's a little... Um, Hard to understand. I think the, the whole point is he who can't afford the gold and silver uses wood. I think that's the point of what's being said there. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Puny little god. <laughs> um, a few people caught that reference. Okay, so why does poverty... Um, I made that point already. Okay, so don't laugh this off. Idolatry. We don't do that. Have you ever seen a codependent girl prop up a guy, especially a guy who's a jerk, and then keep coming back to him even though he treats her like garbage? She props up or seeks to save her idol so that her idol can rescue her from her loneliness. Or how about some dude with his baby? It's in quotes, like his Jeep or his motorcycle. He's always working on it. Propping it up, he worships it. We can do this with our houses, with our cooking, with all kinds of things. We can prop up our idols and then we worship and serve them. We serve them so that they'll serve us. Sometimes it's do-it-yourself idol crafting. Sometimes we hire others to do it for us, like in Silicon Valley. So I don't know what this is. You, you can use a lot of good things to the glory of God, but we also can turn a lot of good things into idols. I mean, just think of what so many people, like just with screens, whether it's TV or iPhone or tablet or whatever, there's a lot of great parallels, though, and it certainly is an idol in our culture. It's not the box and pixels. It's what the box and pixels brings you. It's what it mediates and represents So some people get really, really angry if they lose the remote. Or the screen gets cracked. Impeding their ability to worship. Or you see those commercials, I don't know, this is a while ago, but where the the guy hugs the cable guy as he sets up his thing because he's just like, yes, thank you for saving my life. Thank you for delivering peace and happiness to my door, yay, even to my very living room. I mean, I, I, again, I'm not saying we're all TV idolaters. I'm just saying it's sad because Satan just wants to turn us down and in on really small little things so that we're blinded to the glory of God. 
And so keeping a screen in front of us all the time is a great strategy. I take prayer walks sometimes on, in the evening, like on Saturday night. It's amazing how many homes are lit blue. That doesn't mean everybody's worshiping the TV. I'm just saying it's just so easy to kind of just hook in. So anything that we have to worry about rotting or tottering or rusting or dying or depreciating or burning up or down doesn't make a good God. So, so idolatry, as we look at it in the context of, of Isaiah 40, it all looks just insane, right? Because we're beholding the glory of God. But if the Lord's glory is not in front of us, then insanity suddenly doesn't appear so insane. I mean, when, when we've got our heads down too long without setting our minds on things above, when, when we've got trials and suffering right in front of our face, when we're looking for relief and we want it now, we don't want to wait on the Lord. Idols are the things we often run to instead of God. It's the self-medication stuff. It's when we're in a pinch and we're suffering, we need relief. And it's especially tempting when trusting in God, following his word, seems impossible or extremely hard or unpopular. Satan loves to capitalize on this. When we're most vulnerable, most prone to yield and give in to the quick fix in the face of a challenge. When we're weak, when we're most vulnerable and susceptible to deceitful schemes, we want the quick fix. So that's why... Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength follows this section. But let's consider before we end here just how we feel vulnerable so often in the midst of times like this. Verse 27, um, we need to know that he sees and he knows and he cares. So the truths of 12 to 26, this big, awesome God could almost have the wrong effect. If God's really, really, really big and we're really, really, really small, maybe we're just too inconsequential to him. Maybe he doesn't care. Maybe we're too small and worthless. So God says to these folks in exile, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My right is disregarded by my God. Why why do we say that? When you felt that way, why did you feel that way? I'll leave you to ponder that one this afternoon, but just notice the names here in the order from Jacob to Israel. Do you remember when that happened? A wrestling match. Jacob struggled with God and wouldn't let him go until he blessed him. Hmm. Maybe that's intentional. Maybe God wants us to believe that we can lay hold of him and say, I won't let you go until you bless me. I'm going to wait on the Lord because I want you to renew my strength. I'm not going to run to the quick fixes. I'm not going to run to man-made answers. I'm not going to self-medicate. I need you. And just as Jacob did so and he prevailed so can we in the midst of our struggle. And so, so can you, really. So isn't it cool that we, we come from a long line of strugglers? God has been awfully kind with doubters and cynics and strugglers. He proved his love to Jacob. He can prove his love to you and me. He wants to. 
Why do you say my way is hidden from the Lord? My right is disregarded. I mean, this God knows every star in the universe. And your way is hidden from him? Really? Hidden? Justice or your right disregarded? Really? So I had a thought a, a while ago where, have you ever had one of those experiences where you benefit from somebody's generosity and you didn't know who to thank so maybe it's a party and there's this delicious spread and you love the food, you want to thank the cook, and maybe, maybe you're out somewhere and, and somebody pays unexpectedly for the whole group and you, you say, who do I thank for this? Well, have you ever enjoyed anything on planet Earth? Did you ever enjoy or benefit from anything yesterday? Is your, is your heart still beating today? Are you still breathing air that you don't own Have you eaten food just about every day of your life? And if you're a Christian, have you undeservedly been rescued from the domain of darkness and qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light? And have you been redeemed by the blood of the infinitely worthy lamb and all your sins paid for? And do you have a living hope that can't be killed by anyone or any circumstances? Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. God's working all things together for your good. disregarded, hidden. I, I love uh, artist jo- Josh Garrels, and he has this song called Colors. And I, you know how you can listen to a song and then all of a sudden you realize what the lyrics are saying? He says this, lift up your shoulders, child. Breathe in. Like, you know how you can be like this and you need to lift up your shoulders and breathe in? And then he says, carry the weight of love you've been given. And it just caught me by surprise because, you know, we can feel like we're carrying the weight of all these things. How about, have you ever thought about the, the weight of love that God has put on you? Why don't you carry that around for a little while? <laughs> Breathe in. Lift your shoulders. So beholding our God, even in the midst of exile, can enable us to sing. He goes on and says, storm is passing by, light breaks in as you learn to sing. So we're going to close by singing, encouraging each other and praising our incomparable God. And maybe we need to just take some time to repent of our idolatry and make sure that we're believing in the gospel of this humble, infinitely condescending God who sees and knows and cares and who's worthy of all of our trust. Let's pray. God, please open our eyes and and open our ears and sensitize our hearts to behold you in all of your glory and to savor your amazing condescension and love. And may it renew us and strengthen us. In Jesus' name, amen.